ultimately what we want you to know today is we love uh, families. We love your family, and we are a family in and of ourselves, and so uh, that is why for this entire five-week stretch that we're in right now, we're doing a family series, Bless This Mess. And uh, what this is, is uh, our attempt to look at uh, Scripture and figure out what is it that God has designed our families for? What is His design for families? Um, And so what we've said is everyone is part of a family on some level at some point. And so some people go, well, you know, not me. And we go, well, you're, if you're here, you're part of our church family today, so you can't be excluded. But everybody has family, and every family has some level of dysfunction to it. And so what we're attempting to do for these five weeks is sort of address that inherent dysfunction. And in getting real about what that dysfunction is, then we can look to God's ideal and begin kind of the slow march there. And so today, I really believe today is for you if you're in here, but also uh, for you to share. We really think that uh, what we're doing over these weeks is important and can be uh, family changing, uh, family transforming. And so we want to invite you not only to take it in and internalize it, but man, when God puts someone on your heart and says, hey, these are the people that this is for, or this is someone else who needs to hear this, uh, we'll make it available for you to share. But we want you to know that this is as much for you to share as it is for you uh, to internalize. This might be the day that unlocks a lot of this dysfunction and function thing for you. This might be a day that really helps uh, your marriage if it's stuck or it helps your relationship with your kids if it's just not quite where you want it to be. There's this tension um, that we all face between the real and the ideal. And so there's this slide we put up last week that it shows the real and the ideal, and there's this kind of mountainous climb from one to the other. So how do you, how do you get from one to the next? And, and what we talked about a little bit as we think about this is, you know, people would self-identify, you know, my marriage isn't ideal or my, I have issues with my children, whether they're toddlers or grown, that uh, my parents or my in-laws are just a grind and I don't know what to do with it anymore. And this whole ideal that exists, we tend to, to live somewhere in the chasm of the real. And what happens is our culture intends to erase the tension here. This is tension between these two things. And our culture wants to erase this. And so what we do instinctively, what our culture does instinctively, it just lowers the standard. And so last week we said, well, ultimately what, what culture does is just says, just lower the standard. Just make that normal. Your dysfunction, everybody's dysfunctional. Just live in it. And, and that's just not the way that God designed us. And so where we want to say, hey, it's okay, don't feel bad. Just be who you are and just be dysfunctional. It's no big deal. What we understand intuitively is that's better for a minute. Like that, that actually relieves the tension for just a minute. But ultimately that, that won't get it done. That's like um, when you're really hungry and you want something good and you, you find yourself in the Taco Bell drive through And just for a minute, you feel a little better. And you know that eventually this is not going to be better. This is going to end much, much, much worse for you, right? There's nothing nutritious there. There's nothing good about being in that line. And yet you find yourself in the line and you go, I'm going to pay for this. And that's the same thing when we resolve the tension between real and ideal and we bring it down to real. All we're doing is getting a fast little drive through snack that for a moment helps us and for the long term just gets us more stuck. And so ultimately we find ourselves dissatisfied. Last week we also said Jesus raises the standard everywhere he goes, but everywhere he raises the standard he deepens grace, which means if you're not there yet, if you look at ideal and go, I can't get there, so why try? Jesus goes, you have grace where you are, but he needs to give you eyes for where you can be. This forces us to grapple with the question, am I going to settle for where I am or really believe that God has something better designed for me? Even when it all falls apart, Christ asks us to hold the ideal and keep chasing. And so what I hope every heart in this room hears today, if you hear nothing else, it's okay not to be okay. We want this to be a mantra that everyone here just kind of says instinctively, it's okay not to be okay, just don't stay there. 
we all are at different levels of the journey. We're all at a different place on that roadmap. It's okay not to be okay. Just don't stay there. Finally, uh, to summarize the New Testament view of the family, last week we put this slide up. We'll put it up again today. And it has these four things on it. Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. And fathers, don't exasperate your children. We summarize the, the whole of the New Testament in these four kind of family, uh, the New Testament's family instructions, in these kind of four statements. And so today, um, this sounds sort of ideal to some people, but we're going to tackle the hardest one. Which one do you think it is? <laughs> the, the chuckles say that there may be a, an inclination uh, on these. Which one is the most culturally frowned upon? Which one is the most politically incorrect? Which one, uh, let's just be honest, is the most aggravating for every woman in the room? And so what we're going to find today is the instruction in the New Testament, wives submit to your husbands, is actually a specific application for women derived from a universal principle given to all believers, okay? So let's look at the words of Paul in Ephesians 5.22, okay? This is the one that always gets quoted. This is the one you hear at the wedding. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What we talked about is Jesus came and turned the world upside down in a family sense, in a cultural sense. Jesus elevated women above their place that they had previously had. Jesus looked at children and honored them and said they were worthy. They were not just accessories or, or cattle like they had been treated in the past. They were actually, they were precious. Jesus then began to tell his followers that power was actually to be used for the powerless, which was a radical departure from the culture. And then you get to 522 of Ephesians, and you hear Paul say, wives, submit to your husbands. And people go, oh, that, that seems counter to all this stuff. It's, it seemed like Jesus was raising people up and creating empowerment, and then there's this thing about submission. And what we don't do is we don't read uh, Ephesians 521, which basically says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the universal command that Jesus is telling, uh, is, or as Paul is telling the, the followers of Christ, how to live in a family structure. Five, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, be imitators of God and walk in the love of Christ. And then he summarizes that in chapter 5, verse 21. And so 20 verses of how to be imitators of God and walk in the love of Christ, all summarized in this final line. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Ultimately, how do you love one another? Ultimately, how are you an imitator of God? Submit to one another. That's the universal principle. So who does this apply to? Submit to one another. That applies to everyone. And it, why do we do it? Out of reverence for Christ. Everyone who calls themselves a follower of, of Jesus is under that command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not to become their Christ. And so everything we go through today, there's a, there's a really sneaky, subversive way that we can misuse this. And what we can do is actually serve so as to gain leverage and power in and of itself. Passive-aggressive serving is a thing that we're not going to talk about, but I just want to lay it out and give you a filter for that. So as you think about this, as we talk about mutual submission and serving each other, we have to be careful never to use serving as a way to gain leverage in a relationship. Well, if I do this, then he'll owe me. Because that's when even serving gets dangerous. So we talk about submission. Submission, ugh. Wives, then, in, in Ephesians 5.22, are being asked specifically to apply a principle that is applicable to all. But in the family structure, the Bible is saying this is a specific principle to be applied, women. I was a child of the Cold War. 
In the 80s, I was, um, I'm just old enough that I did a few duck and cover drills in school where the siren would go off and you'd get under your desk because that would really help in the event of nuclear war, right? We remember that. Hey, look, nuclear fallout. Get under your little wooden desk, children. I studied it then in college as, as a, a history student. I was fascinated by this kind of period uh, between World War II and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and you, ha- you kind of have this strange cold war, meaning bullets aren't being fired, but there's absolutely a war going on. And what you learn in that study is nuclear war was avoided based on the principle of what was called mutually assured destruction, in that if, if Russia, if the Soviet Union had fired uh, nuclear missiles our way, then we would have obviously fired ours their way, and everybody would have died. And they go, okay, well, that won't work. Well, what if we start the war and we fire our missiles first? Well, then they fire theirs back at us, and guess what? Everyone dies. And if you've ever seen the movie War Games with Matthew Broderick before he was Ferris Bueller, they they run these simulations. And every simulation that gets run, doesn't matter how the war starts, doesn't matter who starts it, how many missiles you fire, eventually a nuclear war always ensures that everyone's dead. And that was how peace was found. Peace was found because if we start the war, everyone dies, and so I guess we shouldn't have a war. And yet everyone has missiles aimed at everyone else. And if you read enough of the news today, that's still the reality. The reason that the U.S. and Russia don't fire missiles at each other is because they're sure that if they do, mutually assured destruction, we'll all die. This is a problem. This is also what a lot of our homes look like. For those listening on the podcast later, there is nervous laughter in the room. You can keep the peace and still have a terrible relationship. No one would argue that that's the right way to keep the peace. That, that, hey, what if we just leveraged all of our power and destructive force at each other, and then if they set me off, no one would say that's the right way to hold peace, and yet we would hold up as, we want peace in our homes. Mutually assured destruction is not it. What Jesus uh, gives to his followers, what Paul then takes from and gives to the, the, the church, the early church, is this idea that it isn't mutually assured destruction. It isn't the leveraging of power for gain. It's actually inverted. It's mutually agreed submission, which seeks more than the peace in the home, but it seeks the flourishing of the home. It seeks the flourishing of the other person, mutually agreed submission, which is to say, no, I'm going to serve you, which gets really comical if you try to put that in a a family dynamic where uh, both members of the house want to serve the other one more. We can't think of it for more than like one or two scenes before it just gets absurd and you go, no one's really that way. Husband comes home from work, wife comes home from work, same time, each has half the kids, they bring them in. Honey, I'm going to make dinner. Well, no, how am I going to serve you? I'm going to make dinner. Well, I'm already making it. What are you going to do? I'm going to give you a back rub while you make dinner. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Well, then what I'm going to do is, while you're giving me a back rub while I'm making dinner, I'm going to, and then, you know, she's like rubbing his arms. I'm going to rub your arm while you're giving me a back rub, so I'm giving you an arm rub. Okay. Well, I'm putting lotion on my arm, so now I'm moisturizing your hands while you give me an arm rub. Well, like, it's absurd. I'm going to serve you. Okay, I'll be on the couch. That's about how that goes. Can you do the dishes? Ugh. Can they do themselves? Instead of leveraging uh, my weapons and my power to create fear and insecurity and hold peace, mutually agreed submission says I'm leveraging my assets and my power and my time for your benefit. This idea is I will submit my life to you. Anybody who's ever helped someone else move uh, has seen how this breaks down at times. Moving is like a microcosm of submission. 
No one likes to move. No one likes to ask their friends to help them move. But eventually, you have to ask somebody because you can't really do it by yourself. And if you watch men, when men show up to help someone move, there's this strange thing that always happens. It's like peacocks getting together and all their feathers come out. And and you'll hear this phrase whenever men are helping other men move. You'll hear the phrase, I'm good. Which which is ultimately what happens when some man uh, in his show of peacockery, um, when, when he picks up a piece of furniture that's just a little too big for him. Oh, that 400-year-old armoire. Yeah, I'll take that. And you're like, you want some help with that? And the man will inevitably respond, no, I'm good. I got this. And he picks it up, and you hear things breaking and cracking and groaning, and he begins to walk. This usually works until you get inside, and and as so often happens, if the, the woman of the house is standing right inside the front door directing traffic, she's air traffic control, and so you bring something in, and she just goes, that room, this room, over here. Those are the most efficient moves. I like those people. Unfortunately, when you're carrying the armoire or the king-size mattress by yourself or whatever it is, she's standing there, and she goes, mmm. Uh, and you're holding it and creaking under the weight. She goes, you know what? Upstairs, guest bedroom. And just everything in you starts to break down, and that whole I'm good thing, all those feathers go away, and you're like, this could end really badly. And inevitably, somebody along every moving journey, somebody ends up in no man's land halfway up the stairs with a chair that's too big or the armor on their back or the king-size mattress that somehow doesn't fit up the stairs. And what has to happen is someone has to come help, which is, which is a really interesting picture. Someone has to actually drop what they're carrying and come over and lend their power, their energy to you to help you lift your burden up the stairs. To which the man who couldn't quite get the thing up the stairs inevitably responds, it wasn't that it was too heavy, it's just awkward, right? Oh, I could totally have gotten that. It's just an awkward shape. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you're an awkward shape. Okay. <laughs> next, time, when next time we move somebody, just remember I said that, and I'm not going to say it again. Okay. Um, so mutual submission is then looking for ways to get up under someone else's burden and help them carry it. That's mutual submission. How do I help you carry your burden? And submission, as we talk about it, even that word just feels in our culture regressive. We live in a postmodern egalitarianism. Make your own reality and we're all equals here. And in our culture, submission is a dirty word because subjugation is our greatest sin in our culture. To make yourself less than who you could be is like unconscionable. The whole point of life in the modernist culture is to be more, to make yourself more, to think yourself more. And so to voluntarily give up some of your power in our postmodern egalitarianism, to give that up is insanity. It doesn't make sense to the world outside, so when that gets brought up, people kind of twitch about it. When the couple tells me, please don't use that submission verse at our wedding, they're not evil. They're thinking we have a lot of guests that that's going to really put off because, geez, man, that's not okay in this culture. And yet Matthew 28, Revelation 4, you, you read through the Bible and you see in the New Testament, all, Jesus says all authority and all power and all glory and all honor belongs to me. Jesus claims it all. He doesn't make any bones about it. All glory, all honor, our power, all authority, it's mine. And then we get a picture of him washing the feet of his disciples. Good Friday, we get the picture of Jesus on the cross. All authority, all honor, all glory, all power is mine, and I will leverage every ounce of it for you. 
mutual submission says, I'm here for you. And it has been scandalous for 2,000 years. So many of us can't uh, believe in Jesus in this modern culture. There's skeptics all around that say, I just can't believe in that. And we're projecting. When we're skeptical of that, you go, well, I can't see myself doing it, so I don't know how anyone else could either. It's scandalous. Which leads us to our one revolutionary question that I think can transform every marriage that can, can turn the trajectory on every relationship that's teetering. And it's a question of submission. Submission out of reverence to Christ. Submission out of love for Jesus. And it's, it's actually way simpler than uh, you might imagine. I'm putting it up on the screen. We'll read it together. What can I do to help? I want you to say it with me on three. One, two, three. What can I do to help? There are people listening to this later in the week on the podcast, and they just got a weird look in the grocery store. So we can kind of laugh at that. What, what do you mean? <laughs> Someone's peeking over the cubicle right now going, I'm good. Are you good? What can I do to help? Well, that can't be this revolutionary question. That's a way too easy, right? This is an offer of all that I am for whatever you need. Simple words, what can I do to six simple words is an offer for all that I am for whatever you might need. It reorients the world if you find yourself asking this more often. And it has an implied immediacy to it. What can I do to help is an offer of implied immediacy. I am here. What can I do? We'll put it in practice, see if it, it makes sense in this way. Uh, teens in the room, we've got some teens in the room. Older children. Imagine you saying this to your parents. Yep, parents of teens now laugh. Like, like if you're a teenager and you ask this of your parents, you should probably double check and make sure their life insurance is current. Because when mom says, what is your problem? And you go, what can I do to help? They will keel over and die. Okay, so be the inheritance that you wish to be. Parents to your children. Think about the things we say to our, our children, our school-age children. Always correcting, always instructing. You're herding cats, right? Did you do your homework? Did you practice piano? Where are your soccer cleats? Get off your device. Make your bed. Clean your room. Clean your bathroom. At least flush the toilet. Come on. And this is the life of a modern parent. Imagine once a day. Like, let's let the challenge be, actual, let's let it actually be an applicational challenge. Once a day. If you have children living in your house, as a parent, your job is to ask them, what can I do to help? It doesn't seem like much. But to submit ourselves for someone else, even for a child, frustrated with homework, can you please take the shower? I ask you to take a shower. Can you please take out the trash? I ask you to take out the trash. Once a day to stop ourselves and go, you know what? What can I do to help? And maybe it's something really practical. Maybe you become a math tutor for about 15 minutes. Maybe it's something not so practical and just emotionally you were needed for that day and you find yourself at the Sunday station talking about this boy that said this mean thing and we're going to eat ice cream together and just cry. That's fine too. What can I do to help has an immediacy to it and works from parent to child. Women to men. What can I do to help? You know what you expect? When a woman asks a man this, I've asked around a little bit. I did a, a little survey of my own. When a woman says, what can I do to help to a man, what they expect in response is grunts and denials. Uh, no. 
I'm good. Just got this armoire, still carrying it, don't know where to put it. <laughs> Women to men, what can I do to help? You might be surprised. You might have to ask more than once. But I remember there were days that my wife would say, you know, what can I do to help? I was struggling to keep all of the, the balls in the air and the, the plates spinning when I was trying to work on my master's. And some days I'd get to a, a week and it was like two classes, full-time job, everything going on. And I got two finals and two papers and I don't know how I'm going to get it all done. And she would go, what can I do to help? And I'd be like, can you take the children for like two hours? Can everybody just not be here? She'd say, yeah, yeah I'd, lo- yeah, I'd love to do that. Let me give you some space. And, they, and all of a sudden I'd have this great moment of clarity and I'd, I'd, I'd push through. I pushed through not because I was some, you know, brilliant, diligent, what I pushed through because occasionally someone would say, what can I do to help? And I, oh, I really did need help. Men to women, what can I do to help? Men are often scared to ask this question. I didn't know you were going to laugh there. You want to really be the leader of your house? You want to be respected by your family? Our greatest fear is that they will answer. Yeah. The honeydew list grows. We're afraid. Men are afraid that people are going to take advantage of them. I had a great day planned or I worked really hard and this is my one day off and that If I ask what can I do to help, I'm going to spend my day pulling weeds or shoveling snow or coaching t-ball or something else I didn't want to do with my day, and now I'm doing it. And and the question that usually follows, what can I do to help, is like, but what about my agenda? Which is hard to admit as a man, because what we're really admitting is that we do believe the universe revolves around us. We're also terrified that we may not be up to the task. Hey, honey, can you, in my house, if it's a handyman job, I just kind of twitch. I don't know how to do it. Can you fix that anything? Name it. No, I cannot do that. You could do that. I'll do dishes. You do the house. I know I'm not up to the task. So I won't even ask. Hey, how do we fix that pipe that's been leaking in the basement? I just want to ignore the pipe in the basement because if I'm asked to fix it, we're in trouble. Every man carries a deep sense of inadequacy in him. And I would actually argue that, to overgeneralize, a majority of the issues in, in the relational dynamic stem from a woman's insecurity and a man's inadequacy. And they feed each other. The insecurity of, uh, I don't feel like I'm safe in this, combined with the inadequacy of, I bet she doesn't trust me to be safe in this, becomes this doom loop in, in relationships. Each feeds off the other. And we don't ask because we're afraid of what the answer might be when we get back. Jesus said if we follow him, we might be asked to give up our lives for others. If we're going to follow Christ, then we have to get over the idea that we might have to give up a Saturday to be his followers. Stuff applies outside of the family as well. You want some great career advice? Give yourself for the advancement of others simple as that. Give yourself for the advancement of others. That's called leadership. You can ask uh, our staff around here. I started doing something somewhat recently. 
I make a pledge every Monday I try. I don't always get it right. Every Monday I try to ask them the same question. What's your priority this week and how can I help? What was interesting is the first week that I asked that, the response came back, well, you're the leader. We should be asking you. Like we're ingrained to think that we're not supposed to ask that to others. We're not supposed to, to, to give up power Positional power, family power, whatever power we think. We're never supposed to leverage our power. We're supposed to leverage our power so other people do stuff for us. And so the, the first reaction of people when I say, what's your priority and how can I help? is like, uh, like what's the trick here? Are you, are you exposing that I need to help you more? Like, what are you really getting at? No, I, what's your priority and how can I help? You want to be a great church. What does it look like to give generously? to submit ourselves to one another. People hear the word giving, they think money. So yeah, there's black giving boxes on the wall. You're welcome to fill those up. That's not specifically what we're talking about. The money that goes in the box fuels the mission on the wall. So the mission doesn't live on the wall, it actually lives in the community. So that's real. But what does it mean to give your time? What does it mean to give your talent? What does it mean to submit yourself for the greater good? You want to have a great church? You find a church? And you want to go, hey, what makes this church great? This church is great because people are submitting one to another. Out of reverence for Christ. I would say this, ask uh, the best leader you know. Everybody can come to somebody in their mind and I say, who's the best leader you know? Think of them. The best father you know, the best mother you know, the best kid you know. Odds are, you are thinking of the most generous and selfless leader, father, mother, kid that you know. So when you think of that person, ask them, are you happy? And then compare the results with the people you know in your life that are the least generous and the most selfish. That are living for self and not submitting to others and say, are you happy? You often don't even have to ask. You just look at the life and you go, whoa. See, the culture tells us that the only reason to give is to get culture tells us that the only reason I will ever give anything is if I get in return. A consumptive mindset. A leveraging mindset. I will give you something, but only because it's going to ultimately benefit me in the long term. Yeah, I'll help you raise up in your career, but when I need a favor, I'll do the dishes for you, but you better change the next diaper. Culture says you give to get. Christianity says you get to give. That submission means you get to give. That the the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the joy that's deeply found in life is not found anywhere other than in this mutual submission. Say it this way, mutual submission is the path to incredible joy in a family, a church, a business, in life. Find me an organization that practices mutual submission and I will show you an organization that is effusive with joy. Find me an executive staff, a coaching staff, a family Find me people who live their lives to serve each other, and what you will find is people with incredibly high satisfaction in their life. Because they've entered not into a doom loop of who can dominate who and who can leverage power on who. They've entered into a humility loop. What can I do to help? See, humility is inherent in this question. And humility, we talk so much about that because Christ was the ultimate humble servant. Humility is inherent in the question. What can I do to help? You have to be humble to ask. Men don't ask for help. Why? When we're moving, because we're prideful. 
The inverse is humility to say, yeah, actually, I do need help. What can, what, what can I do to help you? Because I need it all the time. You have to be humble to set aside your own life to focus on someone else. And then you have to be humble to accept it. I got this versus I really could use a hand. Pride says, I got this. Humility says, yeah, I could use something. It's a humility loop. To ask it increases humility. To receive it increases humility, which makes you all the more likely the next day to ask it and receive it and ask it and receive it. And before you know it, you've got that weird family where the guy's got lotion on his arm and he's giving his wife the back rub while she's doing the dishes and making dinner. And everybody goes, how did this happen? I don't know. These people just love to serve each other. And they seem really happy. I say all the time our greatest social uh, societal ill is, is pride. That 90% of our sin we could probably root back ultimately to pride. What can I do to help is a humility generator and a pride killer. And I said there's a danger in it. There's a danger in faking it. There's some of us that are Jesus followers and still living in the Cold War. We're still resting on mutually assured destruction. We hold power and we leverage power. And in our homes, we may have peace, but it's an ugly sort of peace. It's a tenuous peace that, man, if that power dynamic changes, the whole thing blows up. So the question is, men, are you emotionally closed off? Are you the center of your own universe? Women, are you over it already? And carrying a resentment that closes you off? Do you serve each other to increase leverage, or do you serve each other as Christ served the church? What we know to be true is if you have one member of an organization, one member of a staff, one member of a family that refuses to submit, the whole group fails. It's like uh, Andy Stanley used the, the metaphor of a bridge. If you think of the Golden Gate Bridge or one of these great suspension bridges that has the two big towers on either end and the, the cables running uh, crossways and diagonally. If one tower fails, the whole thing fails. It's only a matter of time before the roadbed crashes into the water below it. You have to have both towers. You have to actually hold the tension of mutually agreed submission. And if one refuses to do it, the whole bridge collapses. Why? Because one was not designed to carry the weight. And it doesn't always happen at once. And this is kind of that, that scary thing when we think about our families and our lives and we, we go, well, I don't know if that's real. That hasn't happened in my family yet. And it isn't immediate. But when enough weight is applied to that bridge, when enough weight is applied to that relationship, when enough weight is applied to the organization, what you find is eventually it's going to fall. People crumble emotionally. People fail morally. People become crushed. You were designed by God to be an ambassador of life, a sharer of burdens and a selfless carrier of the weight that this world has to offer. Because rooted in Christ, there's nothing too heavy for us. You say, well, you can't be designed for that. Scripture says you are made in the image of God. You were made in the image of God. The first one who asked the question, what can I do to help? Look in Isaiah 53, and you find through the prophet, God reveals his son. In a sense, asking, what can I do to help? Isaiah 53, verse 4. Speaking of Jesus, who is yet to come, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. 
We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, submitted to us. He was crushed for our iniquities, he submitted to us. The punishment that brought us peace was on him through his submission. By his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before the shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, Jesus was taken away. And yet, who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He submitted to us. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor there was any deceit in his mouth. The picture of Jesus in Scripture is of a life submitted for others. And the truth of Scripture is you were made in that image. And you can't divorce the two. You can't divorce the idea that you were made in the image of God. You were made as an image bearer. And Jesus said, my great prayer is for them to go and do likewise, to carry on the mission. And at the same time, say, I'll take the Jesus part and the salvation part, but this is really about me and I'm going to live for me. The totality says you were made in the image of God so that you might display the image of God. And that display is most purely seen when we are submitted one to another out of reverence for Christ. So what happens when we fail to live out this design? Our function. This function. Our culture is drowning in a sea of dysfunction because none of us were designed to carry the weight alone. When we operate in mutual submission, in our homes, in our relationships, in our church family, we begin to live out the God-given destiny as image bearers. And what we find when we're in that space, in those glorious seasons where it's actually real and it's happening, for some marriages, you're like, hey, man, man, that was five minutes last year, maybe. Some organizations, you go, I don't know if we've been there ever. That's okay, that's getting real. The ideal is if you were there, you knew the joy it brought. If you are there now, you know it's worth fighting for. Nothing brings greater, deeper happiness and joy than a follower of Christ submitted one to another. And it is as simple as what can I do to help? So your challenge this week is to find that question on your lips. Your challenge this week is to find a chance to ask it. Annoyingly so. And no member of the house gets to look at the other member of the house and go, you're only asking that because we're told we had to. You don't even really want to do it because you're already thinking it. It's upon us to ask, what can I do to help? And it's upon us to also respond. If we're asked that this week, to be humble enough to respond. And I truly believe that if we can be a people who looks at others not as someone to leverage for our own gain, but as people to submit to for their benefit, that we will find ourselves in greater joy and greater happiness and greater health. And we'll be able to look in the mirror and every day see a little bit clearer the image of God lived out through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are your uh, children. God, when we are honest and we confess to you, we would be uh, really clear that there is dysfunction. There's dysfunction in the most functional marriage because there is uh, sin in this world. There is 
no shortage of our ability to fall short. God, what we aim for, what we long for, what we yearn for is the joy that comes with, uh, with your will. With fitting into your plan and accomplishing your desires. And even for those of us who go, man, I don't even know what that means. Father, we know that you're faithful to make it clear to us. So my prayer this week is that we would be a community that would be uh, submitted to one another. That we would find in ourselves the humility to ask, what can I do to help? And we would find the humility to answer with what helps might be needed. Father, I pray that you would use that humility, that you would use that willingness to submit one to another to radically transform lives bring marriages out of the ditch, to bring families back to wholeness. One question at a time, one step at a time. Father, we believe and trust that your word is true. And so we believe and we trust that as we're faithful to follow you in the way that you've laid out, that you will be faithful to see us made whole again. Thank you for Jesus and his submission to the cross and to death that through his death we no longer suffer the penalty of our sins and through his resurrection we no longer have to fear death itself because it is no longer ours, that we live in, in Jesus because he first submitted and asked the question, what can I do to help? Father, may we be a display of that, a reflection of that, and may this world see you. May this world feel that sacrifice of Christ through our actions and our everyday lives. God, we love you. We thank you for your truth and your word, and we pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.